Good morning, everyone. How are you? I guess there's a few of us missing, maybe on holidays, traveling around. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to be here and, and to be used by God to speak. Let me just pray for myself and for us as we, as we hear what he would have to say. Father, I thank you that you are here. Your presence is here. You love us. And you desire that we hear your voice. Lord, I pray that the words that I speak would not be my own, but would be from you. I pray that the words that we hear would be from you. I thank you for this season, celebration of the coming of Christ. I thank you that we remember what you did, how you humbled yourself. And Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of that right now. Lord, that you would speak to me. He would speak through me, and that we would go from this place a little closer to you because of what we've heard you say today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Rick said, my name is Ian Perry. I'm from Canada, so Robin will be happy that I'm not quite American, and I can speak a little bit like the colonies, although I won't have a British accent that he's used to. Um, I've been in Beijing for about eight years, and uh, I've been teaching for most of that time, I teach a, a life, life skills course called Life Education. And uh, I enjoy my time here. Since I moved to Beijing, I got married. My, my beautiful wife, Farfar, is listening intently to every word I say right now and then changing it into something better, hopefully. So if you really want to get a good message today, put on your earphones and listen to the Chinese. Um, and then we have three lovely kids. I totally forgot to bring a picture. I apologize, but you probably see a picture of them most weeks. They usually run up on stage at some point. Um, we have our oldest daughter, Sienna, who is five and a half, our middle daughter, uh, Karis, who has just turned four, and our son, Creighton, who is two years old. Uh, a couple years ago, actually, just before Creighton was born, John asked me if I would speak, and obviously it hasn't happened until today, and so I've often wondered, what will I speak about? Um, and it's taken through different life changes, Creighton being born, uh, Creighton being in the hospital, traveling, being back in Canada, changes at Capitol. And finally, I'm up here, and, and John still asked me, I think a couple weeks ago, you know, does God have a word? Does God have a word in your heart? And when I think about that, I think, wow, that's a, that's a pretty blank slate. It's a pretty open door to talk about whatever, whatever is on my heart. And when I think about the Bible and, and the themes that God would have us understand, it's often better to think of it as a thread. And so originally a few weeks ago when I thought about what I would talk about, um, at the same time this idea of wouldn't it be cool if, if we had enough singers that could sing an a cappella version of Mary Did You Know, which it was pretty cool. Um, but at the same time I thought, wow, you know, this is the week before Christmas and we're still waiting in the Advent period. And what better thing to talk about than Mary? Because Mary was the first person to encounter Jesus Christ. But because I think about the Bible as a thread, or many threads that are woven through the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, it's often better for me, and I hope for you, if we go back. So I'm going to go through, with your permission, or without, the entire Old Testament before we get to Advent, where Mary encounters Christ for the first time. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he designed it 
perfectly. And he said that everything was good the way he intended it to be. And when he created Adam and Eve, man and woman, it was the same way. He made them good in right relationship to himself, to each other, and to the rest of his precious creation. It was God who defined that goodness for them. He was the, the author of what was, what was good and what was appropriate and what was intended. Everything that Adam and Eve needed, they could get from their fellowship with God in the place where he had them, where he intended them. And as you may recall, sin entered the world when that serpent gave them a sales pitch for the most devious and devastating bait-and-switch scheme that's ever happened in history. He offered them that fruit. And when Adam and Eve saw the fruit, that they could have the ability to be like God, knowing good and evil, they fell. They sinned. And immediately aware of their sin, immediately aware of their nakedness, they now had their own definition of what was good and evil, no longer dependent on God for that definition. And with that, they began to make some pretty interesting choices. They covered up their created form. They hid from God, ran from him, rather than waiting on him, rather than coming to him and confessing what they had done. It's a pretty strange idea when you think about it. They had been in fellowship with God from their existence, from their creation. And immediately, as soon as they disobeyed him, they changed. They ran and hid. And God, out of his mercy, bans them from the Garden of Eden, knowing that because they have now eaten from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they're making their own choices now. And if he allows them to continue there and eat from the tree of life, they will run from him forever. Because that is the nature, the sinful nature of man. Once, we, once sin came into the world, we, we don't run to God. We tend to run away from God. And from the first sin, everything changed. Man left his garden partnership with God. And he has experienced a God-shaped soul, a God-shaped hole in his soul ever since. The Christian author, Erwin McManus, in his book, Soul Cravings, describes this in a way that I think is, is pretty interesting. It says that everyone, man, woman, child, no matter where you were born, how you grew up, what you believe in, everyone has cravings or longings in their soul. We crave intimacy because we long to be unconditionally loved and accepted and known for who we are. We crave meaning because we want to understand our life experience and make sense of it all. And we crave destiny because we long to know that we personally have a purpose in our lives and a future. And this isn't surprising because in fellowship with God, Adam and Eve had all of those things. They had intimacy. They had meaning. And they had destiny. And when Adam and Eve regarded equality with God a thing to be grasped, they made a choice to put themselves in God's position, a position that they could never fill. And they came up empty, literally, the God-shaped hole. Man was out of the garden, but God wasn't out of the picture. And the rest of the Old Testament, from the fall until the end of Malachi, 
is basically a picture of the effects of sin, the messy results of what sin does in the lives of God's people. But it's also a picture of God's relentless pursuit of a relationship with his beloved creation. And he does this by making covenants with people through whom he will restore his relationship with all people. Now, a covenant is a bit like a contract in that it has terms and conditions that are applied. But unlike a contract, a covenant is not able to be broken when one person breaks it. If a covenant is made, you recall the covenant that God made with Abraham when he put Abraham to sleep and he walked through the carcasses of those animals that were split. A covenant goes both ways, usually. But if in a contract, if I don't do my part, you're no longer obligated to do your part. A covenant's not like that. A covenant says by oath, by swearing, regardless of whether you do your part or not, that I will fulfill my part. And there are basically four major covenants in the Old Testament. The first one is with Noah. And God has just destroyed the entire world and cleansed the world of humanity's corruption with a flood. And only Noah and his family are left. God basically says, I know that humans will continue to sin and they'll continue to rebel against me, but I'm not going to destroy the world in this way ever again. Remember the sign of a rainbow, of hope, a promise. What's interesting about this covenant with Noah is that what God requires of Noah in this covenant is nothing. Even though God knows that humans will continue to sin, he promises to remain faithful when he knows that humanity will not. The second covenant that God makes in the Old Testament was with Abraham. He says that Abraham's descendants will be God's chosen people, and they will bless all the people of the earth. In return, Abraham is to trust God and teach his family what is right and what is just. And God continues this partnership with Abraham's son of promise, Isaac, and his son, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons who became the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's with Israel that we see God make the third covenant. The third time we see God make a covenant is with the whole nation of Israel through Moses. God gives a set of laws and guidelines for their relationship with him and with each other. If they follow his law, he will bless them and they will represent him to the rest of humanity. And during this time, God makes his dwelling place with his people, first in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. Only the high priest had direct access to God because of God's holiness. God was set apart. He was different, unique, untouchable for those of us who are not holy. And the priest had to be ceremonially clean before entering the presence of God. If you came into contact with anything that was associated with death or with disease, he would be ceremonially unclean and therefore unable to enter the presence of God. In fact, if he did, he would be killed. He would not be able to be in God's presence because God is holy and God cannot be with unholy things. Interestingly enough, later on in the Old Testament, there's this little passage in the book of Isaiah and Isaiah has a vision where he is in the temple. You may recall, he's in the temple 
and the, the glory of God is filling the temple. And Isaiah says, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. And Isaiah knows that he shouldn't be there. He knows he has no business being in that part of the temple. Woe to me, I deserve to die. I am not clean, and I'm in the presence of the most holy one. And there's a really interesting thing that happens. One of the seraphim, it's a type of angel, gets a hot coal from the altar, and he brings it to Isaiah, and he touches his lips with it. And this is something unique and different, and it's, I think it's a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah, of what Jesus is going to be like. Because when the high priest or anyone in Israel had touched something that was unclean, touched something that was associated with, with death or disease, leprosy or bleeding or anything like that, dead animals, they would become unclean. But here we have a precursor for Jesus where the coal makes Isaiah clean. And Jesus, later on, when you see him walking around healing people, he's not afraid to become unclean. He touches lepers. He touches the blind people. A woman who has been bleeding since birth touches his cloak, and they become clean. They become healed. And so there's this, this hint of a promise of something that might change. Lastly, God makes a covenant with King David. And David is to lead Israel by obeying the law and doing what is right and just. And God will bring a king from the line of David to extend God's peace and blessing to every nation. These are the covenants that God makes with his people as he pursues them to restore their relationship with him. But sin is still in the world. And man is now broken. And he's cursed, trying to fill this God-shaped hole with all kinds of man-made alternatives. God's people don't fulfill their part of the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow injustice to run rampant in Israel. And this results in them losing their land and being forced into exile. It is during this exile that the prophets of God speak of a time coming when he will restore the covenants and make everything right between him and his people. This will be the new covenant. God's people look forward to the coming of the Messiah who will restore relationship with him in this new covenant. Remember David's line? Well, after the death of David's son, Solomon, the nation of Israel is split into two kingdoms. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ruled the southern kingdom, which was basically comprised of two of the tribes of Israel, Benjamin and Judah, and most of the Levites. The Levites were the, the tribe that was serving God in the temple. Men continued to look to the line of David for the coming king that was promised. But each king seemed worse than the last one. And the hope that there would be a kingdom established that would bring peace and justice to all nations began to dwindle. The Old Testament ends with the word of God through the prophet Malachi. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children back to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And after captivity in Babylon, 
Judea is ruled by Persia, Greece, Egypt, and Rome. 400 years pass without a Messiah, without a prophecy, without a word from God. And then, in a quiet room, in a town called Nazareth, an unexpected visitor comes to an unassuming girl with an unlikely message of hope. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was barren is already in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And we celebrate this time of Advent every year because we're, we're remembering and looking forward to the coming of our Savior. And no one would have expected, surely not Mary, that God would have used this time and chosen her to bear him, to bear God, to bear the Messiah, the coming king, and to change the whole world and to bring a new covenant. Because if you look at all of history, Christ is the fulcrum with which everything is changed. Everything from the Old Testament was looking forward to Christ, looking forward to the coming Messiah, looking forward to the new covenant, to the fulfillment of the old covenant. And everything since his death and resurrection is looking back to him and looking forward to his second coming. Jesus is introduced as the one who fulfills all the covenant relationships. He's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring blessings of Abraham's family to the whole world. He's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He's a king from the line of David who extends God's justice and peace to all people. Most remarkably significant and amazing is that Jesus fulfilled all of this as a man. But he wasn't just a man. 
He was God who became man to fulfill what wasn't fulfilled. Let me repeat that so it's clear. God fulfilled his part of the covenants, and then God became man to fulfill man's part of the covenants. From Jesus' conception to his crucifixion, and later confirmed by his resurrection, a man humbled himself, literally bearing his cross in obedience to not only become the Messiah of the Jews, not only to fulfill the covenants of the Old Testament, but to be the Savior of the world. Look back at Mary's response. In verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And this young girl is the first one to encounter God incarnate, the Word become flesh. Not as we would expect the Word to become flesh, but as a helpless, humbled baby, not even born yet. When she hears this news, not even conceived yet. And yet Mary receives Jesus completely on his terms. She doesn't add any of her own terms or negotiate any of his terms. She doesn't complain or begin to ask about the pros and cons and think about other alternatives. Is there another way we could do this? From what we can read in this passage, Mary doesn't even appear to consider how this is going to cost for her. Instead, she believes God at his word. And she receives Jesus completely on Jesus' terms and responds in the most appropriate way, recognizing what he has done and worshiping him. The passage that was read earlier was a sort of parallel passage, remember, that um, the angel appears to Joseph. Joseph had planned quietly in his heart to divorce Mary. Surely Mary probably had some kind of idea like that, right? And it's a good thing that an angel also appeared to Joseph. But Mary certainly couldn't have believed that God would send an angel to every person that she had to explain why she was pregnant. But she received Jesus on his terms, regardless of the cost to her. It could have cost her reputation. It could have cost her marriage. It could have cost her relationship with her family. It could have cost her her life. In Luke chapter 1, goes on. It says that at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child who you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Now you remember Elizabeth, Mary's relative, is also pregnant with John the Baptist, who is going to be the forerunner for Christ, right? He's going to be the one who announces Christ. Some people have paralleled John the Baptist to be Elijah. That was referred to in the Old Testament. 
Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud of their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. See, Mary remembers the covenant and recognizes that the baby growing in her will fulfill all of God's promises. She doesn't know how that's going to happen. We don't know if in her mind she thought that he would become a great earthly king or a leader of God's people, a militant leader. Certainly in those 400 years that passed where God was apparently silent in Israel, the Israelites forgot God's law. They forgot God's promises. Sure, maybe they knew it, but they weren't following it. And they came to a point where their hearts were so hardened, their ears were so deaf, and their eyes were so blind, they couldn't fathom the idea of the Messiah coming as a baby, as a man, as a humble king. Jesus not only fulfills the old covenant, but he establishes the new covenant that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It might be fair to say that because he fulfilled the old covenant, he was able to establish the new covenant. The author of the book of Hebrews calls it a better covenant. And this is a covenant that we can all take part in. Because the Old Testament was promises to God's chosen people, the people of Israel. And when Jesus came, he extended the offer to the Gentiles, to everyone. And we are all partakers or invitees to this new covenant. It's a covenant of grace. And Jesus offers it to all people because he paid the price on the cross. His death was necessary so that we could have life. And he offers his grace to each one of us today, right now. Every one of us, every day, is tempted. And we struggle with the same thing that Adam and Eve were tempted with, of regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we try to fill that God-shaped hole with all sorts of man-made things. We put ourselves in a position that only Jesus can rightfully have. Remember that you were made to experience fulfillment. You were made to experience that in relationship with God on his terms. And if he's not part of your life now, then you'll know this because you experience those cravings in your soul. When I say soul, I mean the core of who you are. No, we don't have a soul. We are a soul. What we have is a body. 
And in your soul, in the core of your being, you have a craving, a longing to be known, to be loved, to be accepted unconditionally, to have meaning and purpose in your life, and to know that there's something more beyond you. And if that craving is strong and if it's not being fulfilled, it means you are not experiencing Jesus as he wants to be, as he wants to be in relationship with you in your life. But be careful. Because just like the serpent with his devious bait and switch in the Garden of Eden, the same bait and switch theme happens to us today. When our soul is craving intimacy, we get offered popularity or sex. When our soul is craving meaning, we get offered riches or power. When our soul is craving destiny, we get offered influence or legacy. And none of these things are bad in the right place. But not one of them, without Christ, will take care of the cravings in your soul. We need Jesus if our soul is to be full, if our life is to be full, if we were to genuinely experience genuine intimacy, genuine meaning, and genuine destiny. Anything that we put in our lives in a place that God is supposed to be separates us from God. It's called sin. The New Testament has seven different words for sin. I'm not going to go over all the seven different words from sin. But basically, my favorite word, my favorite definition that most of them fall under is, is that missing the mark. Things weren't intended to be that way. You got it off. It wasn't accurate. It wasn't correct. It wasn't in its right place. And everything that we put into our lives that is not defined as appropriate by him, not as God intended, is sin. And that sin separates us from God. And so no matter how many times you try to fulfill those cravings and put lots of different things in, it's insatiable. Because those cravings are unlimitedly huge and eternal. And the only thing that can possibly fulfill an eternal and limitless craving is an eternal and limitless God. And so today, Jesus is still the only way to satisfy all of the cravings of our soul, to remove all of our sin from us, and to restore us to a right relationship with God. We were created to have that relationship. And he offers this to you right now, today. All he requires from us is that we believe. And if we struggle with that, he helps us there too. You see, God fulfilled all the obligations that he had in the old covenant. And God, in the form of man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled all the obligations that we had in the old covenant. Why would we think that it changed with a new covenant? We don't bring anything to the table, people. Everything that we need, everything that we want is offered in Christ, and we have nothing to offer back. If we believe in him, call on his name, we will be saved. We don't have any control over what we believe. 
I'm not able to, to choose to believe something. Try it for a second. Everyone just, for a second, I want you to just temporarily choose to believe that gravity is not a, a true thing. Right? You can't. Because belief comes through experience, logic, or through revelation. I don't work myself into a belief. I can't give myself faith. Without Christ in the Christian life, nothing makes sense. And we're stuck with all of these little paradoxes. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But this faith is not from ourselves. It's a gift from God. And Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. If Jesus is not in the picture, I don't have faith. If I love God, I will obey his commandments. And the greatest commandment is to love God. And I can only love because he first loved me. If Jesus is not in the picture, none of it makes sense. In the same way that God fulfilled all necessary parts of the old covenants, Jesus fulfills all necessary parts of the new covenant so that we can have not only a relationship with him, but the abundant, fulfilled life that he intends for us to have. And yet, we often run the opposite direction because sin is still broken in our, in our lives, in our hearts. A couple years ago, when Karis was, uh, had just learned to walk, started to begin to run, uh, she was about two years old, I biked her to the fruit market and, uh, you know, I was kind of just taking care of her and taking, taking her with me to go get the fruit. And like every stupid dad probably does at some point in his life, I take her out of the, the bike seat and put her down beside me and I turn to lock up the bike. And after I lock up the bike, I go to pick her up again and she's not there. And I look around, Karis, Karis, and I can't find her. And as I go looking in between the cars, I finally come in between these two vans, and I see that Karis is running as fast as she can with her two-year-old legs towards the street. Karis, stop! No! And as loud as I say it, she's not listening because she thinks it's fun. She's running as fast as she can go toward what I know is death. And I run as I'm yelling to her, and I grab her at the last second. Just as a bus goes by. And that bus driver doesn't care about Karis. That bus driver just cares about where he's going. He couldn't have possibly stopped had she kept running. And sometimes that is us. Running as fast as we can go away from God because we think it's fun. And we're throwing all these different things into the cravings in our soul because we don't take Jesus at his word. We don't receive Jesus on his terms. Rick talks about that, running as fast as he could away from God, and God put his foot and tripped him. And thank God that he does that. Thank God that he does that. Because often, even as a Christian, even as someone who has known and tasted what that intimacy, meaning, and destiny means, I still run away, thinking that it's fun, choosing my own way. Karis could not possibly boast 
that she saved herself from death. We cannot possibly boast that we have done anything to save ourselves from death. Everything was done through Christ's life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Jesus had to intervene in the old covenant. And we still need him today to intervene in our lives in the new covenant. Because without him, nothing makes sense. Are we willing, like Mary was, to receive Jesus completely on his terms? To believe him at his word? And to put him in his rightful position on the throne of our lives where we worship him in submission. Because it is still God who fulfills both sides of the covenant. Will you let him? Will you say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you say. In 2008, there was a massacre in Mumbai. And terrorists with machine guns began walking down the street and shooting everyone they could. People ran and hid in the cafes and the buildings in the sides of the street. And there were many people that were murdered, that were killed because of this. And afterwards, after the chaos, they were interviewing different people. And there happened to be an actor from the UK. And he retells the story of what happened. As he heard machine guns coming down the street, they first thought it was firecrackers. They thought it was a celebration. And he hid in the cafe and curled himself up in a ball. They said, how did you survive when everyone else around you died? And his response was, I don't know. I stayed as still as I could. And when everything had passed, I was covered in blood. And it wasn't mine. And I was alive. Isn't that the gospel? We face impending death because of our sin. But we're covered in blood, and it's not ours. And because of that, we are alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for pursuing us relentlessly, continuously, the hound of heaven from the first time that we, your people, sinned. You have never given up on all people, on each one of us. I thank you that you love us enough that you sent Christ to fulfill that which needed to be fulfilled. And you sent him and did all the parts that, that we need to have intimacy with you, to have genuine meaning in our relationship with you and a destiny together with you for eternity. Lord, I confess that often I don't believe. Help me with my unbelieving. If there's anyone here, Lord, that does not know you today, I pray that you would give them faith, that they would hear, that they would receive you, believe you at your word, and worship you. Lord, I pray for all of us who have known you and are in a relationship with you, that we would turn back whenever we turn away from you, and we would put you in a place that only you deserve to be, because you fit there. In Jesus' name.